In the meantime, you're turning to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we are now at one of the most important chapters of the Bible. In fact, it's interesting because you're sitting here today as a direct result of what took place in Acts chapter 9. Isn't that wild? I mean, you got this doctor. His name is Luke. And he writes the Gospel of Luke. And he turns himself in to a great historian. You could read the first chapter of Luke. And he uh, interviews eyewitnesses and talks to people. And uh, he was a companion of Paul's and some others. And uh, uh, he wrote the book of Luke. And then this is really Luke 2. Acts is Luke 2. And that's funny because he's telling us about what the early church did, what the early church was like. Watch this how the early church did what they did. And that's really important by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, today we're going to see uh, that this gospel that was to go to the Jews first. And Jesus told us that at the end of his ministry as he's ascending into heaven, that we're going to or that uh, the early church and the disciples and the followers of Christ were to give the gospel, make disciples in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now you and we as followers of Christ or disciples, learners, ones who follow the Master, our commission is the same. What are we doing in this age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming? Well, we're proclaiming the gospel, and we're discipling people, and we're waiting in expectation, waiting and watching on the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. That's what we're doing. And so you see then how to navigate a life filled with the Spirit, a life that lives for God in a culture, in an era, Acts, where their idea or their thoughts about how you get to God is clearly in the minority. In the culture of ideas, Christianity is just a speck here, and it's growing, of course, And doesn't it sound familiar? I mean, that's what you just turn on the TV and you'll see that we live in that era. (laughs) And so how do we live and walk and move and share and love? And what is our purpose and what are we doing? And Acts is all about that. For the early church, yes, but also for us. And now we get to a place in the book of Acts, where it's sort of a transition period. God has sent His Holy Spirit in the early chapters of the book of Acts to come upon the church and to empower them for ministry. And He sent them out. And primarily what we've been studying about is the early church in Jerusalem. The early church in Jerusalem and in chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, we see that the national leaders and Israel, in a sense, 
resists, rejects the Holy Spirit. And so we go through the life of this man named Stephen next. He was a early church deacon, so to speak, an overseer, one who ministered to the Hellenistic widows who some said were being slighted in the daily distribution of food. He was one of those, and he branched out as he served and loved. God gave him a a large ministry, and he went to preach and to teach, even in front of the important people of Israel. And he was killed for that, and he was the first martyr of the church. And last week, or excuse me, at the end of that chapter, we saw that, we saw that Saul, my Ohio accent is coming out here, we saw that Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen, and then this man named Saul persecutes the church in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We talked about that. We uh, saw then that a man named Philip, another overseer in the church, preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch. And we get to the end of that and we see what's happening is the Lord is starting to enlarge and send out the apostles and the followers of Christ to different areas. And I'll I know I've been summarizing, but I want to remember, or want us all to remember, that the Bible tells us because of this persecution that this man named Saul and others was uh, instituting upon the church, the church, the people were scattered. And this is important to know. We went over this. Scattered doesn't mean like when you turn on the light for cockroaches and they just sort of scatter, like, haphazardly. The word that they use for scattered in that chapter is no, it's a planting of seed, a scattering of seed. And the idea here is that the persecution God used to plant his followers in the exact places that needed to be, or that they needed to be for the gospel to go forth. You got it? And here's the point I'm making, and I made it last week, so I'll make it again. Wherever you are, wherever God has put you, that's where he's scattered you to. I get it. Sometimes our bosses aren't that nice, or this situation isn't that great, or whatever. But God has purposely placed you there. So for us to whine and complain and cry about where God has put us, be careful. Now, is there anything wrong, time out, somebody's going to ask me, I hate my job and I don't want to be there. Well... Fix a resume and put it out and see if the Lord moves you on. But if he doesn't, or until he does, bloom where you're planted. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Show Christ to your workers. And off you go. So we get to this place, and we've been introduced to this man named Saul. Now, if you're confused, because Saul eventually gets another name, that's okay. Saul eventually becomes a guy named Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And here we're seeing his story. And remember, he has a fascinating life. He was born in like, do we have that? Do we have the map? He was born up in Turkey. And he's part of Tarsus. See it up there? And uh, Israel's down here. But he was born in Tarsus. But as a boy, he was sent down 
to Jerusalem, and he studied under the most famous rabbi that there was. His name was Gamaliel. And some of uh, extra-biblical writings said that Gamaliel would bring books upon books to Paul, and he would devour them, and he couldn't keep him in books. This was a smart man who was trained in the law. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the Bible tells us, and the son of a religious sect called the Pharisees. They followed the law to the T and even made man-made traditions about how to follow the law. And he was what they called a son of a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But what's interesting about Paul, even though he was Jewish, he also was a Roman citizen, Acts 16 tells us. So he was perfectly placed with one foot in the Jewish world and one foot in the uh, Gentile world, non-Jewish world. He was perfectly positioned, no coincidence. And measured by the Old Testament law, he said himself in Philippians 3, th- uh, 6 that his life was blameless. He followed the law as hard and as well as anybody could follow the law. And he was one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he probably, listen to this now, this is important for today's story. Don't glaze over. He probably was part of the Sanhedrin. Who are the Sanhedrin? It was a 70 person plus one because the high priest was on the council. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was, if, if that's true, think about it. He was part of the ruling council. The chapter we're about ready to read is somewhere between a year to two years after Jesus rose again. But who was Jesus tried before on the night in which he was betrayed and then he was put on the cross. He was tried before the Sanhedrin, folks. And that's an interesting thing. If he was part of the Sanhedrin and Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, who would have been in attendance? Wow. So he had heard things and he had seen and watched as people came into the ruling council, some of these early followers of Christ, and gave the gospel. Are you catching it? So he would have heard these things on several occasions. And as you know, later in his writings, he talks about as he was watching Stephen's head get bashed in with stones. He consented to it, and he watched it, and it never left him. After he's converted, he writes about it, and he knows what kind of a man he was without Christ. So that's who we're dealing with when we get to chapter 9. It says, then Saul, Saul, I'm thinking hockey. (laughs) Jordan Stahl, oh wow, how he did make it into a sermon. But anyway, then Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So here you have it, Saul. We've told you who Saul is. Everybody with me? You know who Saul is. Something's about ready to happen. And he had been wreaking havoc or wrecking havoc upon the church in the last chapter. Now watch, that was this use of the Greek language 
that signifies or talks about a wild animal being wounded, wreaking havoc, and he's still breathing out threats like an animal. That's what, listen, listen, time out. That's what external religion can do for people. Looking just so pretty on the outside, dead and rotting on the inside. And people come and don't adhere to your traditions or the things that you always and typically do. And there begins to get, people begin to get bitter and hateful. And eventually here, take him down. Well, that's not exactly true because he laid down his life for us. Jesus did. But now we see Saul still breathing threats. And he's breathing, breathing actual murder against the disciples. Murder, folks. We've read this so many times, I wonder if it really hits us. Here he is, still breathing threats, still murderous against the disciples of the Lord. So you want to be a follower of the Lord. And here he is, he's breathing that out, and he goes to the high priest. He has access to the high priest, who was Caiaphas at the time. Sound familiar? Because Jesus went before Caiaphas. So what would Paul know about what took place when Jesus was tried, was crucified and buried. He would know this for sure, that the one called Jesus Christ of Nazareth, now listen to me, was really, truly dead. And that's important for the story. He would know it because he knew about the tomb being sealed and a guard being posted around it. And people, you know, the, uh, the, the soldier piercing the side of Christ and the blood and the water coming out, signifying this, this one wasn't in a swoon or he, this one, Jesus, wasn't uh, uh, unconscious. He was dead. And Paul knew it. And he'd been hearing these things now for all these couple of years as he encounters these people who call themselves Christians or the way. Or the ones who call upon the name of Christ. That was the early names of the church. He knew what they were saying. He's no dummy. He was saying that he was hearing that this one resurrected and came to life again, but he rejected it. He didn't believe it. And he knew what they thought and he knew what they said. He'd heard it, he'd seen it, he'd listened to it. So he asked for letters from the high priest, from Caiaphas, and maybe you could put that back up there. He's going to, I don't know if it's, uh, the, the city's on there. He's going to go up uh, north. Uh, so yeah, Syria. If you go in there, Damascus is to the right of Antioch there. You see that? He's going from Jerusalem up to Syria, which there were lots of synagogues at the time of Christ all around the area. Do you know this? During the Babylonian exile, when the Israelites in the Old Testament weren't in Israel anymore, synagogues be began to spread around so that the Jews could practice their faith. And you could put them in any place where there were 10 or more male people. They would put them in cities. So you would find synagogues all around uh, the places uh, up and near uh, en route from Babylon to Jerusalem. And here that has happened. And Paul sees and knows and gets word that through the synagogues and in the places where spiritual things are discussed, a group 
of Christians. He calls them, listen, the way. People of the way, whether men or women, he's going up there to find them with authority from the high priest. Are you catching this? He's got a warrant out for their arrest issued by the high priest. He's going to bring them and hopefully, ultimately want them killed. You see that? Murderous threats. So he goes up there into Syria, in Damascus. He found any uh, who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, how long would it take Paul? It would take Paul probably somewhere between five and six days. He was going about somewhere between 125 miles to 150 miles, somewhere in that range. That's how far he was walking to get to this place. Everybody with me? So as he's walking... The other accounts, there are two other accounts in the book of Acts, in Acts 22 and Acts 26, when he's given his uh, testimony, he gives this account again, Paul does. In the other accounts, it says it was at noon as he was going up uh, to uh, Damascus to injure and to bring back people of the way. Now that's interesting because it tells you something. Don't tune out here. Why in the world were the Christians, the early Christians, called the way? What possibly would label them as such? Because they talked so much about this. John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And there's, oh, and no one comes to the Father but by him, but by me, Jesus said. Now, let me say that to you again. What is one of the things that the early church is learning to do? Live in a pluralist society where there's a lot of ideas about how to get to God. And Jesus, not in a narrow-minded way, I challenge you to think about it, but in a tender way. I mean, come on, folks. If you had a kindergartner and you said, you know, there's 70 ways to tie your shoes. I'm going to teach you all 70. You'd say, what are you doing? Just do the little rabbit ear, do the little rabbit ear, run it around and tie the thing. Teach them one way. So you just make it simple and easy. You don't give the history of shoe tying and sandal making to the kindergartner. True? Right. It would be mean. And the Lord here is just saying there's one way. Because he knew if there were two ways or three ways, men would make six ways or eight ways or 20 ways. And here he's just saying there's one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it must have been that the early church, the way, focused and talked and preached this in the pluralistic society. You get it? So he goes there and he's known that it's called the way. And he journeys and he comes near and suddenly there's a light around him from heaven verse 3 and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me Saul Saul why are you persecuting me now I have this handy dandy Bible not better than yours but I bet you some of you have it those letters are in red your letters in red raise your hand if the letters are in yeah oh my I'm not as special as I thought I was, no. But they're in red, and why are they in red? Because Jesus is talking. There's this vision that comes to Paul. 
actually Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that's an amazing statement. Because was Saul directly persecuting Jesus? No, he was, well, yeah, but no. He was persecuting the people of Christ. You get that? The followers of the way. And there's this principle in the New Testament and in the Bible that if you mistreat the people of God, you're actually mistreating him himself. Is that how you say it? Anyway, okay. So you get it? Which is fascinating to me. I was telling Jan, I never thought about this last night till I heard somebody said it. One of the things that the New Testament teaches, you and I and we, is that when we become Christians... We now are spiritually in Christ. We are in Christ. It's mysterious. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. So that the things, look at this, that happened to us are happening to him. Whoa. See, this is way different, this gospel, this thing that happens for the Christian. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ... There are things that happen for you that you maybe not be able to see, but are nonetheless true of you spiritually. And one of them is that your old life, your old nature has died and you've been raised to new life. That's why when you baptize, it's a picture of what has happened to you spiritually. You've raised a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you're a new creation in Christ. If you're sitting here today and you don't know this, know this. The gospel is not about making you better. (laughs) Write that down. The gospel is not about making us better. It's about making us new. And that's big and that's huge. And so here they are, uh, or here it is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, I submit to you that every one of us in this room, whether you know it or not or think it or not, are going to have to answer that question at some point. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm not a follower of Christ. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says at his first coming, he came to die for our sins, break the power over sin, and raised to new life so that we could have new life. We live now in between his first and second coming in an era of grace and mercy. And he's reaching out and saying, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. But there's coming a time when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule and reign from earth and he's going to rule and reign in judgment. And we're all going to stand before judgment seats of Christ. And for those who haven't surrendered their life to Jesus, he's going to say, okay, here's what I'm going to base your judgment on. How righteous you have been. And you have to be, how how righteous do you have to be? The Bible tells us, Jesus answered it. You have to be as perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. You say, "Uh uh-oh. Don't you say, "Uh uh-oh. I say, "Uh uh-oh. And if you've failed in anything and failed to meet God's standard, the Bible says if you've fallen short of the standard of God, the Bible says 
The wages for that, for sin, falling short of the glory of God, is death, spiritual death. Oh my. Separated from God for all eternity. But here comes the good news. You thought, come on, I came for an uplifting message. Well, here comes the uplifting part. But if you trust in Christ, the Bible tells us that he forgives our sins and cleanses from all unrighteousness. And not just that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he gives you his righteousness. So that when you meet the Lord, he looks upon you as perfectly righteous. Whoa. That's the message of the gospel. And that's why you have to come to know or have to be warned that everybody in here, everybody in the world is going to have to come to this question. Who do you say the Lord is? If you claim the Lord as Lord and Master and surrender your life to him now, he comes into your life, and when you meet him, you're judged based on his righteousness. If you want to say, I'm going to reject him now, well, the Lord's going to still be fair, but you're going to go before him. And the Bible tells us in Philippians that all tongues will confess, all knees will bow at the name of Christ. And I don't mean this in a flippant way. Trust me, I don't. And what I'm about ready to say. So you could either do it now or do it later. And here's the point. There's two different places for those people. One to heaven or one to eternal uh, communion with God, eternal life, one to eternal separation from God. And you're going to have to answer the question, who are you, Lord? Paul had to, or Saul. Saul had to. On this road, marching to Damascus, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Now that fascinates me, because I gave you the background of Paul so you'll understand this verse. Paul was in the Sanhedrin. He was listening to the sermons. When you read this, understand, Jesus was a popular name back at the time. There was more people in the world named Jesus than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Do you get it? But he, red letter Bible again, in his words, in this vision, as Paul is hit with this, and it's so bright at noon, Brighter than the sun, it says, he says, I am Jesus, watch this, and Paul knew immediately. He didn't have to say, oh, I'm the Christ from Nazareth. You get what I'm trying to say? When he said, I'm Jesus, one commentator said, Saul knew exactly which Jesus spoke. Saul heard probably, probably, he heard Jesus teach in the Jerusalem areas prior and as a likely member of the Sanhedrin, he sat in judgment of Jesus in the trial before his crucifixion, and he's been hearing or listening to the apostles after Jesus' ascension. He knows exactly who's talking to him. You get it? So he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And many of you know what that means. The goads uh, were used with oxen and I don't know if you've ever been with an oxen to, to, or a cow or something. You ever went cow tipping? You try to push those things and they go nowhere, right? 
They go nowhere and, you know, you can pat them or pop them on the behind or whatever you do and scream at them and they just look at you like, hey, dummy, what are you, you're never getting me to move. But if you have a goad, they'll move. And what a goad is is a long stick with a point on the end so you can get far away and still poke them without getting kicked. And you pr provoke them on to moving forward so that they'll move and do their work. But what really hurts is not just that. That hurts. But when you kick back against the goad, it goes in farther. You get it? And that hurts. And what Jesus is saying to Paul, I think, is you've seen during the trial. I didn't speak back. You were there. You know that I was innocent. You know, you saw, you saw what happened to me. And you know in your heart of hearts, Paul, that this is true. And I'm coming to you now in a vision. You know I'm alive. You thought I was dead, but you know I'm alive now. And you've been resisting it all this time. You've even been consenting to the murder of my people. And you've heard, again, you saw in the, in the time I was on trial, you've, you've heard the speeches or the sermons or the teachings. You've watched these Christians and the way they act and what the Holy Spirit can do for a person. And I want you to stop. Quit kicking. And boy, as the Lord says this, he trembling and astonished says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he says, and he uses that title, Lord, instantly, you see. He's become his master. Jesus has become his master. He's following the Lord. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you will, back to Acts chapter 4. Verse 12, this was an address, folks, to the Sanhedrin. Everybody tracking with me? This was a prior address to the Sanhedrin. If Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, he would have heard this address. And they were the, the apostles, the followers of Christ are speaking, Peter and John, to this ruling council. And they say in verse 12 something that you and I like to memorize and repeat. Nor is there salvation in any other, any other than who? Jesus, the Messiah. For there is no other name under heaven give, given among men by which we must be saved. He'd heard this. And he was kicking against the goats. And why I get emotional about it is, because I know maybe there's even people here today who are kicking against the goads. You want to think about some current issue or something about that, but the Lord deep down is saying to you, and maybe even somebody watching, uh, I'm Lord. I'm the Messiah. I'm the predicted one. I'm the one who came to save you from your sins, and you're living your life without me. And he was saying, stop, don't. Stop kicking against the goads and surrender your life. Call upon my name. And instantly, this man, think about who this guy is. 
This guy is the highest trained person of education you can get. If you're a person of education, you weren't more educated than him. He was in the ruling council, like a Supreme Court justice. I mean, come on. And he was very smart and very articulate. And you know what goes along with all of that. There was probably some good money involved. And instantly, in an instant, when he learned, watch, when he learned that Jesus was alive, it all changed. Everything came out from under. The rug was swept out from under him. And here's the first thing. This is amazing. As we surrender our life to Christ, <laughs> what is one of the first things that we say? How does our attitude change? It becomes, hey, Lord, or hey, anybody, hey, life, what can you do for me? That's what we think about prior to Christ. What can you do for me? What can anybody do for me? What can be happen for me? And even sometimes when we investigate the claims of Christ, what can they do for me? That's not what Paul was about. He was like, instantly, as he learned that Christ was alive, he said, what do you want me to do? I'm here for your service. Isn't that fascinating? What do you want me to do? And uh, the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. You know, one thing, folks, people of faith, God really, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, just gives you bit by bit in faith. I mean, he's not going to tell you, you know, I want you to do A, and then you're going to do B, and then you're going to do C, and then you're going to do E, and then you're going to come to the conclusion, and this is what I'm after in your life, and this is how it's going to end up. Don't you sometimes wish that's what he would do? But the Lord doesn't necessarily do that. He just says, take one step of faith at a time. And Paul was happy with that. Just go into the city and I'll give you more directions. Isn't that great? And why is the Lord doing that? Well, the Lord's doing that so you'll continue to believe, continue to trust, continue to stay with him. Why? Because we're fickle even in our Christian lives. And the, uh, the Lord says to him, just go into the city. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Okay, time out for a second. I'm going to take a little rabbit trail. He gives this account two more times. I told you this in chapter 22 and chapter 26 as he's giving his testimony and sharing with some rulers or kings. And that tells you something right there. In the Bible, in the Bible, folks, um, what's the word I want to say or how do I want to phrase it? Uh, they're a very efficient, they use their, uh, their writing or their, uh, uh, how much they're going to write is very efficient. So for somebody to write something and spell it out three times makes it um, unbelievably important. You get me? And here, uh, he writes it out three times. And in Acts 22, Acts 26, he gives some different accounts. And people get all jammed up about this because it says, in Acts 22, he didn't hear a voice. Now, that's easy. That's no big objection. It happens in my house every day. I'm downstairs in the basement watching basketball, and my wife yells, Hey, can you... And I go, Oh, my wife's talking, but I have no idea what she says. So I just keep watching basketball. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no. That's no big deal, right? And oh, by the way, it also says 
that in the other accounts that they saw that the other people saw someone. So there were men with him who heard a voice but didn't hear a voice. That's easy. Basketball, wife upstairs, or the other way around. But seeing no one, in the other accounts it says they saw some people. But it's the same thing. Uh, hey, uh, you know, somebody might ask me, did you see some people at the basketball, you know, or whatever, at the, uh, the council meeting you were at the other night? Oh, yeah, I saw some people at the council meeting. I have no idea who they were. You say it all the time. No big deal. Anyway, back to the story. Somebody will ask me about that. That's why I addressed it. <laughs> anyway, Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. Now, again, time out. Just hang with me. Can, can you imagine? I want you to think about this. Being really wealthy. Uh, being on top of the socioeconomic uh, order of the time, especially in and around Jerusalem, being the one who was commanding people to go into homes and pull people out. And, I mean, you were important, you were rich, you had uh, power, you had influence. Watch this. And within five days, a 130-mile walk, you can't see, you're on your face trembling, and people are leading you around by the hand. What would you think? You'd think, wow, that's a humbling experience, right? That's a humbling experience. C.S. Lewis said this. I might even have the quote. I'll say it so fast, so you better put it up. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said this. It's so true. Every story of conversion, listen, every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. I want you to think about that. What does the Bible say, or who does the Bible say, to whom does the Bible say God gives grace to? The humble, but he opposes the proud. As one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, similar to what C.S. Lewis said, something must die. And what is it? It's the self-life. Every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. And here he is, three days without sight, and he's not eating or drinking. And he comes to a person that's just an anonymous person. That's what I want you to see. The ruler, the, the guy on the Sanhedrin, the guy. The next thing he knows, within five days, he's turned from being the pursuer to the one who needs to be led around by the hand. And he comes to just a normal Christian. This is just somebody, a guy in Damascus named Ananias. We know absolutely nothing else about this guy. He was just a believer like you, like me. You catch it? And there was a certain disciple, and his name was Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. The Lord came to Ananias, and he said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas. Hmm. For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. Time out. I got another quote, hopefully. What happens to a person when they become converted and their God gives grace to the humble, 
but opposes the proud. What is one of the things that happens? Oh, yes. We are so technologically savvy. Every converted sinner is a soul revived to prayer. Every saint restored from backsliding is a soul returned to the life and power of prayer. Every congregation enjoying an outpouring of the Spirit is a congregation revived and alive to the prayer meeting. Every converted sinner is a soul revived to prayer. Nobody had to teach him. Listen, nobody had to give him a book, a document, anything. Do you have the next page? Yeah, J.B. Johnston wrote this on his book on the prayer meeting, 1870s. And so what I wanted to tell you is, how did he know to pray? Well, he'd been a, a Jewish uh, follower of the law, but boy, instantly, watch this. He is a person who's going to be praying. And Ananias has told that, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Just real fascinating, there's a street in Damascus, still called Straight Street, and the Romans had something to do with it, and it's really a fascinating thing. Actually, in another Bible that I have, it's actually Kai's, my son, I sort of stole it off his desk. But anyway, there's a picture of Damascus and the way in which Rome orchestrated a street, okay? And so you just got to follow me. So when we go to Israel, there are these 10 cities near Israel called the Decapolis. They're Gentile cities that were influenced by Rome, but one of them is inside of Israel proper, and it's called Bet Shan. And you go there, and it has all the Roman columns. It even has the outdoor Roman toilets. It's really funny. They're still there. And back about 100 to 200 years ago, there were, or maybe longer, there were uh, a, a massive earthquake, so the columns are down, but the city's still intact. And guess what the city has right down the middle of it? A street. Because all Roman cities had a straight street. And the reason is, is they would parade down the city and look at the shops, and it was the place to go. It was their socio, uh, you know, the place where they socialized. So it's really fascinating. And here you find one in Damascus. In Damascus, it's called Straight Street. It's still there, by the way. You can go and look at it. This one in Damascus. And Lord, Ananias goes, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done in your saints to Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all. Here it comes. I love it. Another name for the early church. Those who call on the name of Jesus. They didn't have some fancy name. The name was, those who call on the name of Jesus. That's what happens for a person who humbles themselves, puts themselves in submission to the Lord, and abides in the vine. One of the things that they start to do is, what do you want me to do, Lord? And the next thing is, or simultaneously, there's this prayer. And what is prayer? It's calling upon the name of God through Christ by the Spirit. What's calling upon the name mean? It just means praying according to his attributes and nature. And what I want you to see was they made that famous. That's what they were known for. They weren't known for posting on Facebook. Being in this political party or that political party. They were people who called on the name of the Lord. 
and they loved people, and they prayed about it, and they served wherever they went. And that's the same thing for us. It's to call upon the name of the Lord all the time, any time, every time. But the Lord said to him, to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, listen to that, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That was Paul's lot. By the way, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, I would do anything for my brothers and sisters of Israel to be saved. I would even go ahead and be accursed if they would be saved. He had a heart for Israel. But God had other plans for him. And what I'm trying to say in telling you that is, you don't have to whine and cry about your assignment. If you've been assigned this job or that place or this thing to do in God's economy, do it with joy and gladness because God gets his purposes done. You don't have to whine and cry. You didn't get your way. Remember, you're saying whatever, Lord. So he goes and he's going to go to the Gentiles first. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me. That's funny. It's just Ananias, just some normal guy ministering to this guy who he was sort of afraid of. Who appeared to you on the road has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he received his sight and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now hold on here. We're almost done. How many names in that little segment right there? Three. Look at them. Saul. Who was Saul in the Old Testament? It wasn't this Saul. There was a different Saul. Saul was the first king, right, uh, of Israel, and he didn't do so well. He was full, filled with envy and hate and bitterness and paranoia and jealousy. And he sort of started out okay, but, and he looked great on the outside. He was a, fa- a very handsome guy, but it didn't end well. And he was very jealous of the next king, David. Remember that? His son-in-law, David, the one who killed Goliath. Remember that? Didn't end so well for Saul. There's another name in here. Judas. Arise and go to the street, it's called Straight, verse 11, and inquire at the house of Judas. Saul was staying at the house of Judas. Now this is, of course, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus, yet the name's still there. You understand that. The one who betrayed Jesus, he died. He's dead. But that name's there. Oh, wait a minute. There's one more name. Ananias. It's not the same Ananias that you see earlier on in Acts chapter 5, I believe. There was this guy named Ananias and Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias first, they sold their home to give to the early church for this amount. They only gave this amount, a lower amount, but they acted like they gave the full amount. You get what I'm saying? And it was a hypocritic, hypocritical thing to do. And God hates hypocrisy. He wants you to be real with him. 
And what I'm just suggesting here is, oh, somebody's excited. <laughs> Somebody yelled outside. Uh, what I'm suggesting here is, is this no accident that you get these three names in a chapter about redemption. Now, of course, these aren't the same people. I'm not suggesting that, but it's used on purpose. I'm convinced because here you go. You say, you know, you think to yourself, you think to yourself, well, I'm praying for that one person, but I'm going to stop because there is no way that guy or that gal is coming to Christ. I think what this chapter is saying to you by the Holy Spirit is don't give up. If Paul can come, if Saul can come to know the Lord in a real and saving way, anybody can. And oh, by the way, there were some people later on named Ananias and Judas. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? So Saul preaches Christ now. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. What? That he is the Son of God, that Christ is the Son of God. He loved his countrymen and he wanted to go there. What's ironic about this is just think about it. He went to arrest the people in the synagogues and take them back to Israel, and he ended up preaching to them within the span of about two weeks. Incredible. You never know what's around the corner with the Lord. Don't give up. Don't quit, quit praying. Don't stop seeking after him. Ask, seek, knock. Keep going. He's a good father. He's not an unrighteous judge. He's a good judge. He's the best judge. He's a great father. He loves to give good gifts. Every good thing and every perfect thing comes down from him. Don't stop. Don't give up. There's hope. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Okay, one more thing. We'll stop here. I just want you to turn over to Galatians 1, and we can talk more about this next week. Turn over to Galatians 1. There's this thing that happened to Paul, and scholars disagree about when and how this happened. Or when this happened, I should say. And look in verse 11 with me and follow along. But I make known to you, brethren, Paul, Saul, is writing this, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it for man, Paul says, I didn't receive the gospel from man. Nor was I taught it by man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Everybody with me? For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. 
watch this. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, I just want you to know that post-conversion, Paul recognized that he was called even in his mother's womb. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He's going to be called out of preaching to the Israelites and the, or the Jews, and he's going to be preaching to the Gentiles. Listen to this. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia, the desert, and then uh, returned to Damascus. Then, after th three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I, I do not lie. And then afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was known by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Here's what I'm trying to tell you as you move back to Acts chapter 9 for your learning. Most people believe that somewhere in here, some people have even said maybe after verse 22, other people believe after verse 25, that there's this whole period of Paul's life, maybe as much as up to three years, in which he went into the desert and was prepared by Jesus himself, how that happened, I don't exactly know. But Jesus did it and prepared him for ministry so that when he got back, he would be sent into Jerusalem and the church would begin to prosper. We'll see that next week. And he heals a couple people. But he's moving on now. The Lord is going to tell us next week he's moving up the coast of Jerusalem up and to the areas from which he was originally born and things like that where the Gentiles were. Okay, time out. I can see you're getting bored. No. Here's the conclusion. You might be sitting here or listening and uh, you might say to yourself, well, I don't know. I have my education, I have my business, I have my extracurricular activities, I have my relationships, and I want happiness in life. And the problem is for you, as I, I've found out, and many who are sitting in here too, the problem is, is you can't get peace and satisfaction from anything that's not the Lord. Here's why. Because our deepest and greatest need is our forgiveness of our sins, and we don't even know it. And Jesus came to pay for the penalty of sins and to break the power over sin and to defeat death so that we can defeat death for all time, eternal life, and be raised to new life. Us. He was, but he gives it to us. And you say, well, there are a lot of miracles here in the Old Testament, some people say, and I don't see them around. Well, 
you're missing the greatest miracle of all. It's Saul's conversion itself. A changed heart. A different human being spiritually. You know what I mean? A different person spiritually. And so if that's you, we're going to pray here in a minute. And I just ask that you would pray that the Lord would come into your life. The Bible says in Romans 10, those who believe in their heart, confess with their mouth that Jesus is who He says He is. The Messiah, the one predicted by the Scriptures, then you shall be saved. But maybe you're here and you're just one who's struggling with what we're to do and what we're to be about as Christians. Well, Paul's life sort of tells you that. To leave behind the things of the world. And as you come in and surrender your life to Christ, you just show up and say, what do you have for me, Lord? And if He doesn't give you the specific thing to do, He always gives you the general. You always, if you don't exactly specifically know to do, just do the general revelation of what God is calling you to do. Love people. Forgive people. Don't hold grudges. Encourage people. Share the gospel. Be a disciple maker. Boom. Praise Him at all times. And maybe you haven't been doing that. Maybe you've been so filled up with work and gossip and raising your kids or whatever, and we've all been there uh, thinking, you know, priorities wrong, whatever it is. Maybe just ask the Lord again. What is it you want me to do? And then go to your prayer closet and pray. And he'll show you just like he showed Paul. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together as brothers and sisters. And uh, we pray for anyone in here who doesn't know you in a real and saving way. They don't know, maybe that there's eternal life or that they can have eternal life. We're praying that you would tug on their heartstrings, that you would say to them and speak to them even right now, either in here or listening, to quit kicking against the goads. It hurts worse. And just surrender and trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and all that He is and all that He says He is. Take that in and make that your life or Him your life. We pray that for them. And for those who have surrendered their lives, maybe we're struggling with what we're to do or where we're to go or what we're to be. Well, Lord, you tell us. Come to you. Ask. You'll show us the way. And in the meantime, just love and serve and give and praise. Lord, help us to be people of prayer. There's one thing that makes us authentically born again. It's speaking to our Father. Help us and lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. Amen.